0: For the next few Sundays and Wednesdays, if the Lord wills, we are going to resume our occasional walk through the Bible's hymn book, through the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. Over these last years, we've covered roughly 60% of the book, the first 90 Psalms, mostly in consecutive order, and then a few others here and there as well. And so we'll pick up this morning with Psalm 91, and we'll hope our hope in the coming weeks to make our way through Psalm 100. So turn with me now to Psalm 91, which we will read in its entirety. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Father, I pray today that you'd help us leave knowing what it is to dwell in the shelter of the Most High, and to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Help us to know what it is today to take refuge, truly to take refuge in you, and woo us, draw us, entice us today, not only to know such things, but to do them. Draw us by your loving kindness so that we actually run to you as our strong tower and find help and safety and security. And you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Security. That's an important word in our culture. As I drive around in my car and listen to the commercials on the radio, it's striking to me how important is the theme to our cultural mindset. Security. Maybe you noticed it too in your own radio dial. Multiplied sales pitches for this or that brand of home alarm system reveal a craving, don't they, to secure our safety and our possessions. Regular advertisements for term life insurance reflect our desire to secure our families once we are gone, and the proliferation of commercials offering protection even from identity theft remind us that in this digital age, we even feel compelled to secure our very identities And none of these desires are necessarily wrong. And certainly none of them is altogether new. The ways in which we provide security for ourselves may be different than they once were, but mankind has always sought security, hasn't he? Whether by building walls and moats or by means of antivirus protection and insurance, mankind is always after security. And understandably so, really, because we do live in a fallen world, don't we? We live in a world... That is under the curse, brought about by sin, which means that we are inherently insecure. And I don't mean insecure in a psychological sense only, but in an actual one. We're not actually safe in this world. Life in a fallen world is not always predictable. It's not always free from loss. It's not always safe. And so mankind understandably craves and seeks to provide for himself security, assurance, protection, safety nets, buffers against life's dangers and its unpredictability and its losses. And the commercials on the radio tell us this about ourselves, don't they? We are creatures who yearn for security. And our God surely knows this about us better than we know ourselves. And I don't think... He actually begrudges us our alarm systems or our insurance plans so long as we're reasonable about their capabilities, so long as they're not our ultimate security. But there is ultimate security, isn't there? In fact, that's precisely what is on offer in this psalm, isn't it? Ultimate security. Our good God recognizes how insecure we often Feel And more than that, he also realizes how insecure we actually are, how tenuous our lives really are, how life in a fallen world is always hanging by a thread. And he comes to us in Psalm 91, and he offers us security, shelter, refuge, protection, assurance that far outstrips anything that is on sale in this world. First of all, Because this security, this protection, this shelter, verse 1, is from the Most High. This shelter is from the Almighty, from the one whose power cannot fail. The moat might actually dry up. The internet firewall may fail you, but the Almighty will not fail you, will he? He is your security. And so Psalm 91 offers us the best security there is because of who it is that is providing it. And not only that, not only is the security of Psalm 91 superior to all earthly assurances because of who is providing it, but also because of what he promises to secure on our behalf, which we will see as we go along is something far more valuable than just our lives in this world. Ultimate security. That is the theme of the 91st Psalm. And I want you to notice, first of all, how the psalmist portrays this security by means of two pictures. Two pictures. The psalmist gives us two portraits of the God who is our protector, our assurance, our security. And the first of them is that God is a fortress. Verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Or at the end of verse 4, his faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. That's what Martin Luther wrote, wasn't it? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. We sang it last Sunday, and now we see those same pictures repeated in the scriptures. Our God is a fortress. He is a fortified castle, a citadel, a keep into which his people may run for refuge and shelter. He is a bulwark, a wall of defense, behind whose shadow we may rest secure when the arrows begin to fly and when the enemy is charging forward and when the devil has laid siege against the city. A fortress. It's a shame in some ways that we no longer make use of such fortifications in our own day because many of us have probably scarcely seen any Active military defense works of any great significance. Much less have we ever needed to flee inside one for our safety. And so it may be difficult for us to fully appreciate just how important fortresses are to endangered people, and just how wonderful it is that God Himself is our fortress. But as I thought about it this week, it occurred to me: if you've read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings or or seen the films, perhaps you can picture that great fortress in his story called Helm's Deep, or located at Helm's Deep, to which the people of Rohan fled in their hour of deepest danger. They had nowhere else to go for safety, no assurance of protection on the outside, but if they could just get to Helm's Deep, well, that place never let them down. Behind the shadow of those great ramparts, they felt secure. Now, as it turned out, they weren't quite as secure as they had thought, Like our modern efforts at security, Helm's Deep even was not foolproof. But as Luther said, our God is a bulwark never failing. There are no chinks in his armor. There are no weak places in the wall of this castle. Our bulwark is the Almighty himself. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So that's the first picture of the God who is our security. He is a fortress. He is a bulwark, never failing. But then the psalmist also depicts our God as a great bird, maybe an eagle or a goose, under whose wings we may take refuge. Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. So picture out in the countryside a timid little gosling or eaglet with the trapper's snare set all around him, verse 3, with foxes in the woods that would devour him, perhaps other birds that would peck at his eyes. Where is he going to go when he senses danger in the air? Well, he's going to flee straightway to the safety of mother or father's wings, isn't he? There he will be hidden from his predators. There he will be sheltered from their claws. There he may rest secure, safe from the trapper's snare, under the wings of a protective parent. And this is our God, says the psalmist. He is like a father goose, under whose pinions the goslings can rest easy and know that they're safe, under whose wings we are secure. If you've ever been near a goose with its goslings, you know how alert they are to danger, right? how keen they are to protect their young. Sometimes it can actually be a little bit frightening if you get too close. And that's the commitment of our God. He will not only shelter his people under his wings, as Psalm 91 tells us, but he will even fight for us when duty calls. So our God is a mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing, and he's like a great protective eagle or goose spreading his strong wings over his young. And as we were saying, both of these are pictures of security. Both are pictures of assurance, safety, protection, refuge. That's what our God is like. He's a mighty fortress. He's a great eagle who provides shelter, shadow, security to his own. And I just wonder if either of those portraits is particularly poignant for you this morning. The fortress, the eagle. I wonder if in recent days you have felt as... Helpless as a little eaglet, harried by various problems, worried by various dangers, pecked at by various temptations perhaps, hounded by the devil. And you've just been longing for some place of refuge, somewhere where you can finally just rest. And if that is you, the timid, afraid little eaglet or gosling, under his wings you may seek refuge. Verse 4. The Lord... If you will scurry under his feathers, will shelter you. The Lord will keep you from falling off the cliff into despair. Or maybe you, with the problems that you are facing, feel more like you're in a war. Arrows of accusation are, or setback are being slung at you. Hard blows are striking you, and you've been staggered, perhaps, in recent days. Wounded, even. Demoralized. And you're not sure if you can keep fighting. Well, what do you do? You flee to Helm's Deep, don't you? You flee to the fortress. You take refuge behind the great walls of God's protection. Say to the Lord, verse 2, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Or in the words of Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Run into the tower today. Seek refuge under the shadow of God's wings today. You're longing for security, and you may have security, ultimate security, if you will take refuge in the God of the Bible, the God of Psalm 91. one He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So think about it. What is it that seems too difficult for you? What is it that seems dangerous or tenuous or precarious in your life right now? Just bring it to the front of your mind for the briefest of moments. Is it there yet? Now, whatever it is, let it drive you into the shadow of the Almighty. Whatever it is that's nipping at your heels, whatever it is that's hounding you, whatever it is that's hanging like a storm cloud over your head, let it drive you behind the walls of God's faithfulness. Let it drive you into the shadow of his wings. Make the Lord, verse 9, your dwelling place. Find your refuge, your ultimate security in him. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. Two pictures of the God who is our security. Now, someone may well say at this point, well, this is all well and good. Make the Lord your refuge when you're in trouble. Flee into the shadow of his wings. These are wonderful pictures, but how do I do it? How do I actually make God my security? He's like a fortress, but there's not actually a great wall that I can see to flee behind. How do I do this? That's a good question. And It forms our second main heading this morning. We've noticed, first of all, two pictures of security, two pictures of the Lord, our refuge, in verses 1 through 4. And now, in this second heading, we come to a question. How do I make the Lord my refuge? Verse 9 commends my doing so. You have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. But how do I do that? How do I seek the Lord? How do I make Him my fortress? What does it look like, practically, for me to shelter under His wings? Well, listen again, first of all, to verse 14. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Now, this entire psalm is about how the Lord delivers those who take refuge in him. And now verse 14 says that the Lord will deliver those who love him and who know his name. Name, Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Do you see the parallel? The psalm in general is about taking refuge in God and being delivered. And now verse 14, God says those who love him and know him will be delivered. And that parallel leads me to believe that the first and most basic way that we take refuge in God is, verse 14, to know him and to love him. To actually be his children, to be converted, to be, in the language of the New Testament, a Christian. If you want to know what you must do to take refuge under the wings of the Almighty, the first thing is to come, verse 14, to love him and to know him. To be converted. And how are we converted? How do we come to know and love God? Well, through the gospel of His Son, right? Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from the death that He died to bring us to God, we cannot know God, can we? And until we're changed by this gospel, we certainly don't love God, do we? But when the message of God's Son comes to us when the message that god loved us and sent his son to die for our sins and to rise from the dead on the third day and to ascend to heaven where he always lives to make intercession for us when that message finally dawns us dawns on us such that we begin to trust in this provision that god has made and to love the one who made it and to desire fellowship with him well then now we come under god's protection don't we now through the gospel of christ we've come to take refuge in god for the very first time And when we do, when we come to know God, when we come to love God through His Son, Jesus Christ, God promises from then on and forever to be our security. Because He has loved me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him securely on high because He has known my name. Or in the words of the New Testament, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And so the first thing, the most basic thing that you must do this morning, if you're to find your security in God, if you were to take refuge in God, the first thing that you must do is to make sure you love God, to make sure you know God. Make sure that you have come to know God and to love God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Hear the call of God this morning to believe in His Son and trust in what Christ did for you by His death on the cross and repent of the sins that put Him there. Know the Lord. Love the Lord by coming to know and love and trust His Son. And you will have come under the shelter of His wings. And the promise of verse 14 will be for you because He has loved me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. And then notice something further in verse 15. Once you've come to know and love the Lord through Jesus Christ, you also have the great privilege of calling upon the Lord in prayer. Once you have become God's child, you have the right to call upon Him and expect to find grace to help in time of need. He will call upon me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. Now, God doesn't say that about everyone. Only those who love Him and know Him. Verse 14. Not everyone has a Heavenly Father upon whom they can call at any moment. But if you're in Christ, you do. And you must take advantage of this family privilege. You must call upon him in the day of trouble and on every other day too. This is one of the ways that we make God our refuge. This is one of the ways that we seek shelter under his wings. This is one of the ways that we run into him as our fortress by means of prayer. He will call upon me and I will answer him. Praise God that our security is not in an insurance policy, but in in an insuring person. Because that person, the Lord himself, is someone who may be called upon again and again every time we find ourselves doubting our security. We're not just a number to him, not just a faceless client. And when we call upon him, we never get an automated phone tree, do we? He's a person. Remember that the fortress into which we run for our security is a person, a divine person. He will call upon me, and I will answer him, he says. Our Father wants to hear our cries and He wants to answer them Himself. And this, once we have come to Him initially in Christ, is one of the chief ways that we continue to seek refuge in Him by means of prayer. Are you a person of prayer? Am I a person of prayer? Have we learned that it is in prayer that we flee to the fortress of God's help? That it is by means of prayer that we huddle under the safety of his wings? As Joseph Scriven, the hymn writer, has written, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. There are other means, of course, of fleeing into the shadow of God's wings. Scripture memory... And meditation, faith in the promises, fellowship with the people of God. But let us not neglect prayer. Because as Scriven goes on to write, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Has not God promised to those who love him, He will call upon me, And I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Take him up on that. Flee into the mighty fortress through the drawbridge of prayer. Take shelter under his wings by means of prayer. So then, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, a strong father eagle under whose wings we may find safety. Verses 1 through 4. And how do we get there? How do we huddle under his wings for protection? By coming to Christ for salvation, by coming to know and love the Lord through his Son, verse 14, and then also by calling upon him, verse 15, in prayer. And then there's a final point that we need to consider from Psalm 91, and it too comes in the form of a question. Namely, what are the results What are the results? What does God promise to those who shelter under his wings? What sorts of blessings are to be found inside the mighty fortress? Well, just listen again to verses 5 through 13. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Or of the destruction that lays waste at noon, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Now that sounds like it would make pretty good material for a televangelist, doesn't it? If you will just love God and trust him and make him your refuge, sickness, verse 6, will pass you by. Plague won't come near your tent, verse 10, and you'll never even stub your toe, verse 12. In short, no evil will befall you, verse 10. Just trust God. That seems to be what the psalm says. So maybe the TV preachers are right. Maybe if we'll just really trust God, we'll have few, if any, difficulties in this life, and we'll die in our sleep, verse 16, at a ripe old age. Yes, I know Satan himself quoted verses 11 and 12 to Jesus telling him to jump off the roof of the temple and the angels would catch him. And I know that Jesus responded to him telling him that to do such would be to put God to the test. But maybe so long as we're not doing that, so long as we're not doing something so foolish as jumping off the roof of a building and putting God to the test, shouldn't we expect that it will be health and prosperity for us? According to this psalm, so long as we shelter under the Lord's wings, isn't that what this psalm teaches? Well, there often is earthly blessing for those who truly seek the Lord, and I don't diminish that. But I also read this psalm, and I have to ask, what about Job? That man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away evil, and he lost nearly everything he had in this world. And what about Stephen, who is full of grace and power and who preached so powerfully in the name of Jesus and who is stoned to death for it? And what about Paul, who is imprisoned and stoned and shipwrecked and beaten, all the while faithfully serving the Lord Jesus? And what about today, our faithful brothers in places like China, many of whom could probably pray circles around us, and yet who never know when they might be taken in for interrogation by the police? Does Psalm 91 apply to them? Can it really be said that no evil befell them? That 10,000 fell at their right hands, but trouble did not approach them? And what about our Lord? If we were ever tempted to think, well, maybe some of these saints suffered because they weren't quite trusting God as they should have been. Surely we can't say that about Jesus, right? No one ever trusted the Father like he. No one ever suffered like he. And God did not come and rescue him out of it immediately because there was a purpose for him to bleed and to die. And there was a purpose in Paul's and Stephen's and Job's suffering too. And there's actually a purpose designed into all the lives of all God's people that, quote, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That is the design of God acts fourteen twenty two tells us through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God and we see that design not only in the new testament but in the old as well and so what gives because acts 14 doesn't sound very much like psalm 91 through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God doesn't sound very much like a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. No evil will befall you. So, so what gives? Is Psalm 91 wrong? Is this one of those places at which the Bible supposedly contradicts himself? Well, we have to rule that out straight away, don't we? All scripture is inspired by God, whether Psalm 91 or Acts 14, and God does not contradict himself. So what gives? How can Psalm 91 be true if it is so patently obvious in Scripture and in our own observation that godly people do often indeed suffer? Well, one solution might be that Psalm 91 perhaps was written for a particular time of difficulty for the people of Israel or for one or other of her leaders. It's possible, in other words, that this psalm was was not written for believers in every situation, that it doesn't contain promises for believers in every difficulty, but that it was written for God's people who are facing a particular difficulty and that it was a promise that God would deliver them, that no evil would befall them, that the arrows would not touch them in this particular difficulty. I think about the story of King Hezekiah in Second Kings 19. He was faced with the enemy of the Assyrians, Sennacherib being their king, surrounding his city, and they were outmatched and outnumbered. And yet, we read this, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it, By the way that he came, by the same way he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. And maybe it was into that kind of a situation... That God made the promises of Psalm 91. In this siege, in this difficulty you're facing, you will not be defeated. In just a moment, Mark is going to tell us a story of a, a missionary friend of his who is facing a, a particularly difficult situation. And a friend of his was praying Psalm 91 for him and for that particular situation. And God, in that situation, delivered him and protected him remarkably. And perhaps this psalm was written for that kind of situation, for the particular moment of difficulty where God promises, I will step in on this day and I will deliver you on this day and no evil will befall you on this day and the arrows will not harm you on this day. Perhaps that is what this psalm is getting at. That is the kind of situation that this psalm was written for. Not a promise that God's people will never face difficulty in their life, but that in this peculiar time that the psalm was written for, God would deliver on this day. In fact, Mark's story is what really kind of set me on to this possibility how to interpret this psalm. Maybe this psalm is a promise of protection, not for every difficult situation that that the believer faces, but for a particular situation faced by the people of God in which God promised that he would intervene very powerfully to protect them even from physical difficulty, temporal difficulty in this life. And maybe we can take it up as that missionary's friend did and pray it when we are in the face of particular danger. Not knowing for sure if God will make all these promises to us then, but asking him to do so. That's one way that Psalm 91 might be interpreted. But it's also possible that Psalm 91, with all of its promises of absolute deliverance from evil, might be referring to deliverance from a different kind of evil evil, a different kind of suffering than we might readily think of when we just read through it quickly. Is it possible when Psalm 91 speaks of deliverance from plague and pestilence and arrows and lions and serpents that it's not actually speaking about the immediate physical sufferings that probably come most readily to our minds when we hear the words plague, pestilence, arrows, lions, and serpents? I think that may well be the case. This psalm may well be promising a different sort of deliverance than that which would bring us physical health and safety in this life. But if that is the case, if this psalm is not promising that we'll always have safety and security in this life, if this psalm is not promising health and wealth and prosperity, what kind of help is God actually offering here? What kind of deliverance can we expect? when we run into the mighty fortress if it's not physical safety and health in this life well as i looked carefully at this psalm with that dilemma in mind a couple of possibilities occurred to me it may be that one or the other of these possibilities is what the lord has in mind here or maybe in a prophetic sense we're supposed to see and apply both so without further ado and trying to be fairly brief let me tell you how I think we can untie the knot that Psalm 91 seems to propose for us. We've already talked about one solution, but another is that perhaps all the promises of protection in this psalm have to do with God's watch care over our souls more so than over our bodies. Someone will say, well, that sounds like you're just spiritualizing it. But I say that because some of the language in verses 5 through 13 sounds a lot like the spiritual warfare language that we find in the New Testament. Spiritual warfare. The Lord promises, verse 13, that you will tread upon the lion and that the serpent you will trample down. And both of those animals, the lion and the serpent, are New Testament monikers, aren't they? For the great enemy of our souls, the devil. And similarly, when verse 5 speaks of protection from the arrow, isn't that reminiscent of how the New Testament tells us that the evil one aims his flaming arrows at us? Spiritual warfare. Do you see what I'm getting at? You could read the whole psalm that way. As God's promise to protect you in the spiritual battles not necessarily from physical harm, but to protect you from the great enemy of your soul. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That it might be about that, because Satan has been trampled under the feet of Christ, hasn't he? That was the promise of Genesis chapter 3, that the seed of the woman would someday come and trample upon the great serpent's head. And Jesus did that at the cross. At the cross, he defeated Satan once and for all, so that though, yes... Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Yet he cannot finally devour you if you seek refuge in Christ. Christ has trampled on his head. And you too, in Christ, verse 13, will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. And so... When I asked you earlier to picture that area of your life that's giving you troubles, to picture that which is nipping at your heels and to flee beneath the shadow of God's wings, the point was not that if you do so, God will take away all your difficulties and grant you smooth sailing all your days. The point was that the waves which he allows in your life will not spiritually overturn you. Satan will not win the day. The flaming arrows of the evil one will be extinguished when you get yourself behind the shield of faith. If you take refuge in God, your soul is secure, though your body may be buffeted with many tribulations. No ultimate evil will befall you. I know I hope that you'll be heartened by that this morning. No one will snatch you out of the Lord's hand. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And the words that Jesus spoke to Simon Peter are just as true of you who trust Jesus as they were of him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it will not fail if you have taken refuge in the Lord. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. So that's one way to read Psalm 91 as God's promise of ultimate spiritual security, as a psalm about spiritual warfare, spiritual protection amidst all the flaming arrows of the evil one. But then let me also say that when I look carefully at Psalm 91, I, I wonder if it might also be promising God's infallible protection on the great and final day of judgment Because there are elements in verses 5 through 13 that remind me an awful lot of what we read about in the final destruction of the earth. Pestilence, verse 6. Plague, verse 10. The recompense of the wicked, verse 8. Just read about God's final wrath poured out upon planet earth in Revelation chapters 15 through 20. And you will see what I mean by plague and pestilence and the recompense of the wicked. These are the things we read about at the very end. And we read about them here too. Which leads me to believe that perhaps this also is what the Holy Spirit had in mind when he inspired Psalm 91. The promise is not that you'll never face any difficulties, any sickness, any disease, any stubbed toes now. The promise, perhaps, is that on that last day, When the angels pour out their seven last plagues, you will be lifted safely above the fray then. God, verse 14, will set you securely on high like an eaglet perched in the safety of its nest while the arrows fly below. When God pours out his final wrath on mankind, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent on that day. What a promise. On that great and final day, there will be no recompense for you who know Jesus. Because he has taken it for you. He has absorbed the plagues for you. He has received the arrow shot of God's wrath in your place. And therefore, in that last day, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day. And if you have found your refuge in this Jesus, then beyond that last day and out into the endless horizons of eternity, verse 16. The Lord's promise to you is this. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see. My salvation. So make Christ your refuge today. Flee to him today. Enter through the narrow gate and into the mighty fortress today. And from this time forth and forever, it will be said of you He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty.